You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. And indeed, you are listening to From the Vault, the best of Beyond Infinity, with an interview recorded in June 2018 with Cedar Anderson on co-inventing and crowdfunding the Flow Hive. Now, the Flow Hive uh, is an amazing contraption. It allows you to get honey on tap. In this interview, Cedar talks about that, and he talks about his super effective use of social media and uh, also the new deluxe model, the Flow Hive 2. Cedar goes on to explain how the original Flow Hive developed over a 10-year period, culminating in a record-setting Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign in 2015. Now with a string of awards to his company's name and over a billion views of its web content, he says that reason we keep going on is because we want to have a positive impact in the world. So business for a positive purpose is cred to our company. So uh, stand by for that. We're talking with the co-inventor of the Flow Hive and founder of Be Inventive, Cedar Anderson. The Flow Hive has, has been this incredible success around the world, and, and I suppose one of the things that stands out is how you used social media and how you used, you know, something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I think was the crowdfunder that you used. The things that I'm interested in is how you took advantage of those technologies to get an idea off the ground. I think you've been a beekeeper with your father for three generations, well, family beekeepers for three generations and doing it for 20 years since you were a kid. It's a great example for inventors and people trying to get projects off the ground of, of how you can actually see this whole thing through. So that's, that's one area I'm interested in. Do you want to just take us through the process you went through? Okay, so we've been working on the flow hive for about a decade, which meant small prototype, putting them into the hive, seeing what the bees thought of it, seeing whether it was useful to us. And the idea was to come to an invention that was easy on the bees and easy for us. So to me, that the, the holy grail was to be able to turn the tap-like feature on the hive and the honey to flow straight out. And, and we actually achieved it, which was an extraordinary thing to be sitting in the paddock and watch that happen for the first time. So then from there... We had this prototype working, but there's multiple, multiple ways to take it to the world. And we also had to sit down and think, is this something good for the world? And we thought, well, yes, if it can make harvesting honey a lot more accessible and increase the popularity of beekeeping and it's gentle on the bees, then yes, we're prepared to, to go ahead and take this to market. What sort of concerns did you have or, or what was the thought process in deciding whether your product was a good thing to take to market? So suddenly you had to think about, you know, this could be a worldwide phenomenon. I think I've, I looked at your website last night and over 50,000 sold to 130 countries. What were possible concerns that you considered? Well, I'm a naturalist myself and, you know, I could, I could easily just run off into the forest and, and, and live there and, and there's this part of me that wants to do that. Mm. Then I'm also into technology and I'm also into invention. So this kind of, you know, is it a good idea? To, to put technology into a beehive or not. It's mm. stayed the same way for 150 years and we come along and go, wow, we've got this new fandangled thing. So thinking about that, the things that make me think it's a good idea is that in putting the technology into the hive, our flow frame, we almost enable honey harvesting in a more natural way, a way where you don't have to pull apart the hive, where you don't have to disturb the bees 
where you can just sit there and watch it pour out. And in, in a funny way, it, it, it feels more natural. And, and I guess it's also, it's encouraged a lot of people to get into producing honey, whether on a small scale or a commercial scale. And I was just intrigued that even at the crowdfunding stage of this early days, you know, your original orders were out to 130 countries. So you've really, you've captured a, basically the whole world by the sound of things. Most of the world has been intrigued by this. Look, we were really surprised because we had our hopes and dreams of how the world would receive our invention. But to have it get the traction it has is just mind-blowing. It's something like a billion views on our content now. Wow. And that's something that you couldn't engineer. You, you couldn't, you know, nobody gets that. And yet we're a beehive. And it's just extraordinary to have the world receive our invention in such a big way. To get those original orders when you first, when you were raising money, seeking to raise money through crowdfunding, how did you go viral? How did you get out to so many people? and then wind up being so oversubscribed. I think, you know, you were, you were chasing 100,000 Australian dollars and you got over 15 million. We did put a lot of thought into it and we, we did spend a long time recording video content, putting it together in various ways and showing it to friends and seeing what they thought and making sure we had all the necessary things in there, like presenting our, our new thing and then backing it up with credibility from beekeepers who had actually used it and also a strong call to action at the end. In my mind, I'd been following crowdfunding for a little while and I thought that's a great way to go because you can put something out there and you're asking the actual customers whether they want it or not instead of trying to convince investors. Mm. And also it puts you directly in touch with your customers, which means you can help shape the way your product is received and help, in our mind, help people understand the importance of bees and the environmental connection and all of that. Whereas if we were working through distributors, we wouldn't have that direct connection with the customer. The yep. crowdfunding in, intrigued me and I've been watching it for a while. I knew that you had to create a snowball to create an avalanche. Yep. Crowdfunding that starts off really really slow generally doesn't do that well so what were the sort of vehicles that you pushed the indiegogo campaign through was it facebook twitter the social media sites i did a bit of research on that and what i found is that facebook's a big one so we focused all our energy on that and also a little bit of mainstream media and that was it and the way we did that is we we built up a page so we got a thousand likes through promoting posts and we had a friend of mine that i grew up with doing that bit of it and then we put a teaser video, which is basically a little two-minute video that says, hi, everyone, this is what we've invented. If you want to find out more, put your email in here. Now, I wanted a 1,000 emails before launch that we could send out and say, hey, everybody, our campaign's live on Indiegogo. But in a week, we had 70,000 emails. And what that meant is by the time we pressed the go button, we had so many people on Indiegogo pressing refresh that we crashed their website multiple times. <laughs> wow. It's a record, isn't it? it? For speed and for the amount that it was oversubscribed, it's still a record for crowdfunding. It is. It broke multiple records. It's the top one on Indiegogo. Mm. And it did break records for the fastest to a million dollars and the fastest to two million and so on. It is an amazing story. See, if you've got sort of other projects not related to bees and, and the flow hive that you're going to sort of apply this skill that you clearly have to, or are you content just sort of focusing on where you are now? challenging bit in myself. I see new ideas and new things every day and I, I keep 
chewing my uh, my partner's ear off about it. But I rein myself back in. I say, focus, focus. And that's how we got the flow hive over the line, myself and my dad, and just maintaining focus on, on the single project and trying not to get distracted. And it's still that way. You know, I've got um, interesting electric-powered aviation inventions that I really want to get to, but I'm, I'm holding them off and, and waiting. I've got renewable energy inventions that I really want to get to, but I'm just holding it up while we focus on, on what we're doing. But hopefully in, in a not-too-distant future, we'll have the company set up in a way where there's a little bit more time to play with some exciting projects. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to hear about them in future. If you're prepared to talk again with us, that'd be great. Cedar, can you tell us about the Flow Hive 2, please? Okay, so the Flow Hive 2 is basically we got the feedback from the market and went, okay, how are we going to change things? What can we do to improve it? So we basically put, there's about 15 different features that are different. It's not a completely new hive. It's still using the basic same technology, but we've just made things a bit easier and a bit nicer and more robust with levelling legs and levels built into the hive and sliding trays and more windows and solid brass knobs and things like that. Okay, so it's the deluxe model, if you like. It is. It is the deluxe model. And people really, I guess the the audience that we've attracted, they, they really do want something that's nice in the garden and they do want something that's, that's functional. And, and easy so it's great to be able to provide that for people and inspire people that otherwise probably wouldn't have gotten into bees to become beekeepers and start advocating for our very little friends that are so important. This might be a, a good moment to bring Simon Mulvaney from Save the Bees in and we're, we're talking with the co-inventor of the Flow Hive and founder of Bee Inventive, Cedar Anderson. Simon Mulvaney is a, a bit of a campaigner against use of insecticides. Simon, you want to throw something in while we've got Cedar on the line? Um, congratulations first. It must have been very hard to um, fill the orders and I can imagine it would have been quite stressful paid in advance and then having to get them all out there. Absolutely. 20,000 orders at once in an eight-week period is actually quite frightening because <laughs> a 1,000 orders is hard to achieve. So it certainly uh, was an exciting time, but I'm not sure I'd say it was enjoyable. And you did get it done, didn't you? I think I was reading you had to get it done by Christmas and you, you managed to do it. We did, for the most part. There was a few orders that missed the Christmas date, which we copped a bit of flack for, and we had to send them, you know, pictures of their flow hives to put under their tree. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we certainly hit a lot of the order dates. I presume these get sent flat-packed. You assemble them yourself? Yeah, that's correct. People assemble them and they take them with whatever finish they would like right. on the outside. Mm. And... Our latest hive comes with all the tools to assemble it as well. So we've tried to make it easier mm. for, for people that you know aren't used to using power tools. They don't like to be stereotypical, but there is more than half of our beekeepers are women and tend to not have used our drills before. So provided little hand tools, you can put the whole thing together. Just like Ikea. Well, there's been a real issue around the world with honey laundering, is what I call it, particularly out of China, a lot of cheap honey getting mixed in with different honeys around the world. So I think you've done a great thing in being able to keep pristine honey straight to the people. Fantastic, yeah. There's certainly seeing it come out of the hive into your jar is very direct and it's very visually direct of the produce coming from the bees to your jar with no processing at all in between. 
beyond just providing a really good product to people and, and as you guys have just been pointing out that you can you don't actually have to make contact there's no sort of skin or you know hand contact with the honey so you wind up with a very pristine product but were you surprised at how this product seemed to encourage sort of awareness of the importance of bees for pollination for i don't know just examples to the world of a, a beautiful little society that's that produces an amazing product absolutely i mean we of course started off with our invention that we wanted to take to the world, and pretty soon we were starting to get all this feedback about how, hey, I've only had my bee my, my beehive one month, and I've already converted my whole block insecticide free. And to me, that's really great positive impact. And and the reason why we keep going is because we want to have positive impact in the world. So business for a positive purpose is a thread through our company. So whatever we do, we're trying to find a way that we can do it better, we can have a positive impact. Yeah. And I've noticed that you have insect hotels now for sale as well. Do you want to tell people about them? So our pollinator hotels were a project to raise some funds. What we did is we got the offcuts of flow hives that were sitting in the corner of the shed and went, hey, we can make a little product out of this. So we made the pollinator hotels. We then put them up for sale and they sold out in four days and then we got those funds and we're donating 100% of profits to habitat regeneration and protection and advocacy for bees. So we've got now a little micro-grant program that people can apply for and get a, a small amount of funding for their project. Is that just in Australia or is that all over the world that those funds are distributed? It's Australia and USA which were the places that we offered the pollinator hotel for sale. It's such a great story and an amazing. I love the fact that your background was a naturalist and you'd grown up sort of in the hinterland near Byron Bay, I believe. It's an example of a business that's sort of having a positive impact on the world, encouraging interest in bees. I believe that in China, they're having to hand pollinate certain crops because of, of problems with pollution and, and bees not being able to do it. So bees around the world have been under threat. Humans have a long way to go for what we are doing is sustainable and examples like hand pollinating crops with feathers and purchased pollen certainly does make you think where we are in a really, really problematic space and there's certainly a lot of change that needs to happen and it's, it's great that people are campaigning for change and it's fantastic that, that there is awareness and bees are now on the agenda which is something that's a relatively recent history. Do you think it's possible at some stage in the future plastic could be replaced in the flow hive? Hemp or something? Yeah, I think it certainly is possible. We have looked into quite a lot of range of materials because we have the same thoughts that you there and we're yet to find one that ticks all the boxes but we'll keep looking. Mm, okay, fair enough. Thank you very much, Cedar Anderson, co-inventor of Flowhive and founder of Be Inventive, for talking with us today. And thanks also to Sam Mulvaney for coming into the studio. Thanks a lot for having me. Fantastic, and keep up the good work, you too. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Interested in gadgets, the web, high tech, or astronomy? Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity on Tuesdays from 11am, your weekly fix of science and technology on Radio Port Phillip. Join me, Piers Cunningham, for all the latest. See you then.
You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio program. And I thought I'd continue the the honey and bee theme. I've got a couple of uh, interviews now. It's it's one interview, but I'll play it in two parts. And it's about issues facing the world's bees. A couple of bee experts uh, came into the studios. It was recorded back in June 2018. And uh, Simon Mulvaney and Ben Moore came in and discussed what's going on in the, in the honeybee industry in Europe and in New Zealand, some of the problems caused by the varroa mite, also the banning of neonicotinoids, um, some of which are used in some sprays you might even have in your garden shed, insecticides and the like. Both Simon and Ben are firm believers that social media can be pivotal in raising awareness of the serious dangers facing bees and those who depend on them around the world. So stand by for that. So I've got a couple of bee specialists in the studio talking with us today about bees. One is Ben Moore of Ben's Bees, and the other is Simon Mulvaney from Save the Bees Australia. Good morning, guys. Great to have you in the studio. Good morning, Piers. Thanks for having us. Morning. Well, we know Simon because Simon's talked to us quite a bit in the past about uh, Capilano Honey. He's got a, a legal dispute with Capilano Honey, which is a big multinational honey producer and also Simon's pretty heavily involved with beekeeping and if you've got a beehive that's that you've found somewhere Simon's a good person to contact and uh, get that sorted out for you now Ben I know less in fact I've only met Ben this morning for the first time but Ben you you were actually telling me that you just got back from a trip to Europe and, and one of the things you said that they've got some some pretty serious problems with their beekeepers brought about by disease just tell us a bit more about that take us through some of your experience you went to several countries in Europe and spent like six weeks or so over there yes Piers yeah it was really super interesting so basically um, my mission was to meet as many beekeepers as I can in as many countries as I could so fundamentally I saw 60 beekeepers in six countries I toured around and that was UK Ireland France Switzerland and including Singapore so it was really interesting to see the bee population over there and the fight and the struggle that the bees have in comparison to Australia. Right. Um, so Australia is a relatively pristine environment for beekeepers. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely. You know, we, we don't have the pests and diseases like they do over in uh, Europe and the rest of the world for that matter. And primarily there's this little mite. It's a, basically a parasite, call it a flea. What it does is it sucks the blood the hemolymph from bees and it transmits diseases and viruses now australia is the only continent in the world not to have this pest and is absolutely devastating and so how is it that australia's escaped this i mean because i actually think you said you said to me off air just just earlier before we started today uh that new zealand has got this i think simon's mentioned this in the past that, that new zealand has this mite affecting their bees and, and their beekeepers but how is it that australia has avoided this scourge well, I think because of our really incredibly tight biosecurity laws, okay. um, I think that's really good. You know, I, I met some of them uh, coming into Australia. I declared my bee suit. I spent about almost half an hour talking with biosecurity. They are at the front line mm. as far as you know preventing these things from diseases and pests from coming in. So, but and also saying that we are lucky. We don't have it because I, I'm, I don't think it's a, a matter of if we get it. I think it's a matter of when we get it. Could be one year, could be 10 years, could be 100 years because there's been a, a few incursions of feral hives on ports. Mm-hmm. Townsville, Darwin and Cairns are, are sort of three areas. So, you know, biosecurity, fantastic in regards to you know, keeping these things uh, out of the country. Do they know how New Zealand 
got the mite? Yeah, I, I did ask. I was in New Zealand in January, and it was really interesting because I was asking around because it's an interesting uh, question. Mm. No one really knows, but it seems to point. A few people are saying that a specific beekeeper, apparently it was a uh, sort of a hobbyist, bought some bees, uh, queen bees, in from Europe. And these bees actually had varroa mites, and that's what spread. So it was quite actually interesting. But still, no one really knows, but it seems to be it was a hobbyist beekeeper. Okay, right, wow. So that's uh, pretty unfortunate for New Zealand. What are the consequences for New Zealand of, of having that mite? Has it got a big impact? Because New Zealand's pretty, they've refused any imports. I think this is going from some of the stuff that Simon's told me over the years about you know the differences between Australia and New Zealand. And you've kind of said, Simon, that you really admire the policies that New Zealand's got to protect their industry and, uh, and not allow any imported honey. Is that correct? Yeah, the whole world's envious of New Zealand's beekeeping industry. Mm-hmm. And they're getting higher prices for the fact that they are really tight yep. with what they import. We allow a lot of imported Chinese pollen here and also a lot of Chinese honey here. So to have such a successful industry and to be the envy of the world, how have they gone about protecting themselves from this mite? Well, they've got the mite and Ben did go over and see how they're treating the mite over there. What I've learnt from Ben earlier today was their feral colonies there have nearly been wiped out. And it's only if you're managing the bees that they tend to be surviving. You got anything to add to that, Ben? Well, with New Zealand, you know, obviously they have to treat. When I was there in January, I spoke to a uh, beekeeper and it costs per hive per year 100 New Zealand dollars just to treat for varroa mite. Mm. So obviously that's adding to the costs of you know, honey, wax. And that's and that, spraying, and that is it? That's using No, it's of... using some miticides, which okay. are basically a low-level uh, insecticide, which is all bad as well because that pollutes, obviously, you know, the comb, the wax. So that's why Australia's beeswax is the best in the world because we don't have to use these uh, chemicals. Okay. That's good for us, but obviously bad for everyone else. This miticide, is, it's a toxic chemical, and they have to use it. And what's also interesting is they can't use the same chemical year after year because these mites build up a resistance to it. Okay. So they've got to change it. There is an organic treatment. Uh, it's using oxalic acid, and that's in the form of a vaporizer. But you have to do that consistently because you need to break that breeding cycle of the varroa mite. So going back to your Europe trip, and you said that Europe's you know really got some problems, and it's related to the mite are there also issues that relate to uh, the use of pesticides over there? Because I know there are certain, again, from talking with um, Simon, there are issues with uh, things like Comfidor and even Roundup, you know, like basic weed killer is what people use it for. And a lot of people have gotten their sheds. Those products have been de- deemed really bad for the environment, carcinogenic, so on. And I think you actually told me that there'd been a victory for you guys recently with getting Comfidor off the shelves of certain large retailers in Australia, Bunnings, Coles, Woolworths. Yep, and the APVMA are the government body that registers those chemicals Mm -hmm. and while ben was in europe it was a really fantastic news or just before they've banned neonicotinoids in europe they obviously have seen an issue with those chemicals i read recently that some beekeepers or, or industries over there have tried to blame varroa mite on the collapse of the bees in europe but other people say varroa has been around for quite a while in france mm. but neonicotinoids are definitely causing so some major harms there. So it's kind of compounding the problem by adding on the, the effect of, of um, those chemicals as well as the, the threat of the mite definitely and particularly neonicotinoids so so what they are they're a systemic pesticide so basically they could be drip fed or sprayed onto the the plant any insect that lands on that plant dies 
mm. now, which is completely, you know, I mean, you think about that, and we're eating this as well, so mm. uh, um, fundamentally, and that can go into seeds. It's a really nasty chemical, mm. and it was really exciting when I was over there for neonicotinoids to be banned. Yeah. It was great. You know, everyone was really excited about the fact, and that's just not beekeepers. Yeah. That's a lot of people. You know, I mean, they were really excited because these they're a nasty chemical. Do you know whether those those chemicals are being banned in North America or Canada, the US? Are they following suit? South America? I mean, it sounds like Europe, Australasia. What about Asia and North America? Unfortunately, no at this stage. I think those big pharmaceutical companies like Bayer and Monsanto have really got a grip on governments over there. I've seen small towns have campaigned and I think they've been successful. I think they've got a big store there, Lowe's or, or something, yeah, yeah. And, and they banned neonicotinoids last year. Right. The companies are bowing to public pressure, mm. a few of the outlets, but the governments seem pretty intent on that style of monoculture farming that it, is dependent on neonicotinoids. Like our cotton industry, our wheat industry, all those seeds are dipped in this insecticide. What are the alternatives? As people move away from that and, and they don't source them from major retailers like uh, Bunnings, for example, in Australia, what is recommended as an alternative, given that you may have a, a pest or a problem that you've, you're dealing with with those chemicals or you have been historically dealing with, what, what do you use instead? Well, obviously, sometimes in monoculture, we do have to use uh, insecticides, but using something that's non-residual. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that's, you know, I mean, obviously, and it'll target that particular species of, um, of pest. Right. I do understand, you know, we do need chemicals. My father-in-law is an agricultural farmer, so I have seen firsthand, you know, I mean, using chemicals, but he's very sort of ethical in what he does, and he will use them, and he'll use non-residual chemicals and just target that species, not as a, as a blanket chemical like neonicotinoids and just kills absolutely anything that touches it. Talking to Ben Moore from Ben's Bees, you can go to uh, Ben's website, it's just bensbees.com.au and also Simon Mulvaney from Save the Bees Australia. Simon has a website as well, it's bethecure.com.au. And Facebook and Twitter and all those sort of handles, do you want to mention them while we're at it? Save the Bees Australia on um, Facebook and Instagram. Ben's an admin on Save the Bees Australia too, but you find him at... Ben's Bees on Facebook and uh, Ben's Bees AU on Instagram. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. So I've got a couple of bee specialists in the studio talking with us today about bees. One is Ben Moore of Ben's Bees and the other is Simon Mulvaney from Save the Bees Australia. Let's go back to Europe. Were there any encouraging things coming out of Europe? You would have taken in quite a lot of different methods and, and the way that beekeepers do their stuff in those six countries you visited. You know, were there any sort of real surprises, eye-openers? Or is Europe quite self-sufficient for honey production or does it, does it import? And if so, from where? That's interesting, Pierce. They have the same problems we do here in Australia. So in Europe, they, they import honey. It's also coming in from China, and they're trying to ban it as well. Okay. So they have that problem. So they're, But it's all about the awareness, and that's what's good about social media and so forth, is people becoming aware. And it's amazing to see. I uh, met this uh, French uh, lad in uh, Paris, and he's starting up his own little company and he's buying small Tesian amounts of honey from various uh, beekeepers and he's selling this honey to people in Paris. And it's giving that real connection from being a beekeeper 
to the actual honey to the consumer and, and it's all about the awareness you know mm. people are now becoming more and more aware and that's once again what's good about social media you very kindly gave me a jar of ben's bees honey pure honey and this is from blackburn in victoria and i've noticed myself we were over in south australia at a place called robe recently and you could buy kangaroo island honey and that was really nice honey also beechworth up in uh, northern victoria up in, up in the sort of foothills of the mountains uh, that's another place which is pretty well known for for very high quality honey and i think people appreciate it. i think people are realizing that there is a difference where and people use it for a variety of things i mean i put i put honey in tea for example, you know, I have, I have black tea with, with a bit of honey in it. But I just think that there is this, you're talking about awareness, but I think there's, the, there's a real appreciation of high quality honey around the world. And it sounds like the same thing applies in Europe. I think people, you know, even, even in places like Paris, where, where mm. there are probably cheaper alternatives available in supermarkets, but actually going for a sort of a niche product that's handcrafted, which is great to hear. What sort of measures can the Europeans take to deal with the mite that you've been talking about? Well, they're sort of working on a little bit of genetics, and that's producing uh, or line breeding a hygienic bee. So what basically this bee will do is it'll be far better at cleaning each other, cleaning themselves and cleaning the hive. The little mite is a parasite, and it'll suck and attach itself on to the bees. The more hygienic the bees are, the better they'll actually do. Okay. So, yeah, it's by just cleaning each other. So they're working on that, obviously, with line breeding. The other treatment is using oxalic acid, which is it's deemed as organic over there. It's basically a vaporizer. And what it does is it's not good for the bees, but it doesn't kill bees, but it does agitate them. And what it does is it basically burns the legs off the raw mite. So, okay, that, yeah, so, stop, yeah, stop from moving exactly, around. yeah. But um, as far as, yeah, they've just got to deal with it because there is no way to eradicate it. Mm. As of yet. One, one thing Ben said just before we came in here was also their bees are a lot more vicious than the ones we have here. And so they naturally had to become more aggressive to cope with the varroa mite. Yeah, right. that, was, that was super interesting. Hmm. Like we can work with our bees in Australia quite often not, you know, in our jocks. Um, not that I actually do that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they can be actually that calm over there geez i was getting stung through my suit really you know, I mean, they were feisty they were a feisty bee a different variety of bees yeah it's, yeah well, it's a different subspecies so it was the apis mellifera got four subspecies here so they're all the same species but they were feisty bees here yeah, they really a few times I, I got a couple of a couple of stings okay do they still have a big problem with european wasps in europe because I remember when I was there in certain parts of Europe, you just, you know, there were, there were no go zones. There were like, you know, you might try to an outdoor restaurant or something in summer and you just couldn't be outside. Like these things were just there and they were crawling all over you. And do they that, affect bee populations? Yeah, that, well, they, they do. That's another thing. The European wasp will attack bees. But the good news is over in Europe, because of the cold temperatures, they die over winter. Okay. So we have more of a problem here in Australia with the, uh, the European wasp. Really? Uh, yeah, right. just because of our mild winters. Okay. And the colonies can get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think the biggest colony uh, that was um, discovered was in Tasmania. It's in the Launceston Museum. Right. And it weighs 93 kilos. Wow. And it's the size of a small car. Wow. Uh, where over there, they just die. And it's only the queens that can go through the hibernation throughout winter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I would have thought if they don't like cold winters, they wouldn't. You'd reckon they wouldn't like Tasmania that much. No, like, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Australia, but obviously you're talking. We're talking you know, snow, really sub-zero, cold. sub-zero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like a, a really interesting trip. Any other any other highlights of the European trip you just did? The best thing is the connection with beekeepers. You know, beekeepers, whether in Australia, anywhere in Europe. It was absolutely amazing. I met some really good people and made some lifelong friends. And you know what? 
at the end of the day, we're all on the same page. You know, we, we want to look after our bees. That was absolutely brilliant to see these amazing beekeepers, just absolutely their passion for bees. And that goes for you know people like myself and Simon, you know, just having this passion mm. for this tiny little insect. I guess with beekeeping and producing honey from beehives, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of pretty sort of well-established methods that they like to stick to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They're traditionalists and it, it's like a tradition, the way they've looked after bees. Smoke's really sacred to them, what the herbs they use and the way they do it. I think I saw Ben put up a picture of tobacco to be used in your smoker and they actually used to use their pipes to do the smoking <laughs> rather than traditional smokers. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So it was really uh, cool to see. And also too there, some beekeepers keep bees in skeps. We're dealing with something that goes back sort of 2,000 years. Okay, what's uh, a skep? Oh, so skep is basically, it's a cane basket. It's upside down and the bees behave naturally inside this cane basket as opposed to a beehive where you can remove the frames. Okay. Uh, so the, the honey is extracted from the outside. It's crushed and strained. And there, there are still some beekeepers over there doing this really traditional way of keeping bees. So mm. unfortunately in Australia, it's against our um, open code of conduct just because you can't remove the frames and inspect it. Um, but they're a beautiful looking hive. It was, it was quite interesting. Tell it? me about the the APA code of conduct. Well, one of the things in the code of conduct, it does differ for different regions. but in, Within Australia? Yeah, like in, in Western Australia, it's a little bit different. But okay. yeah, to, to keep bees in frames is, is one of the things that you have to do. There are different hives, but by having frames, an inspector can come along and inspect whether you've got disease or not in your hive quite easily. Ben and I both do removals. Obviously, the feral hives that we come across aren't kept in frames. But so quite often, it's quite a messy job to look in and see how the hive's going. So that's the reason they do that. What are the hot issues that you see facing the beekeeping industry around the world? We've mentioned the, the mite. We've mentioned Confidor. We've mentioned um, Roundup. What other th- you know, important issues would you like to tell people about? I think it's sort of about the, the importation of honey. People want to know that they're buying something pure. As far as honey, you know, it's sort of 20% of my business, but quite often not, I run out of honey and I'm happy to tell people, sorry, I've got no honey. So what happens is, you know, people start exploiting the bees. Yep. Uh, so I think that's important that people really, they find a beekeeper and they really get in touch with them and know how they look after their bees and buy local just don't buy from overseas and there are some of these great as we'd mentioned before there's just lots of these sort of smaller producers little regions whether it's kangaroo island or beechworth or elsewhere that just seem to have some great products for people to, to get hold of I think Leatherwood honey has won the best honey in the world a couple of years. Really? And that's a plant in Tasmania, and Tasmania have got a particularly healthy beekeeping industry, yeah. and they have got more isolation than the mainland. So that's one area that probably won't have Varroa mite for a long time, we hope. What else can you do with honey? I mean, I've actually been looking at Ben's website. There's quite a few, you know, beeswax and, uh, and soap are, are both mentioned there. Are consumer products derived from beeswax what do you use I, it for I, I tell you what's becoming incredibly popular is producing a beeswax wraps so basically that's a substitute for plastic so as opposed yeah. to having plastic uh, i think the average um person in a, in a household environment the average person is 60 kilos of wasted plastic per year yeah. now what's happening is is, is this fantastic 
invention. It's been around for quite a quite a while, and it's a beeswax wrap. So you can make them yourself uh, at home. I do sell them, but it's easy enough to make. And it's beeswax, jojoba oil, and pine rosin, and it's melted together. And you dip some cotton cloth in there, yep. and that then becomes a reusable form of glad wrap. And I think it was what people used before glad wrap became popular. You know, back in the day, a hundred years ago. 70 years ago people used this and you just reuse it and that's that was right, went over yeah. something that was open that was put in the fridge or that's a great application and it's good to hear that you can actually do it yourself which is a nice yeah exactly yep and then you can obviously got your candles soap so this is infused into soap or it's, it's pure yeah uh, no so it's actually mixed to create soap you it's a chemical process called saponification and you you put wax in there as well after the um the process and what that does is it gives it that sort of really good quality so for for your skin so it really uh, makes it uh, nice and smooth yep and it bubbles up nice and uh it's yeah, beeswax is really good so cosmetics are massive with the beeswax industry mm. and australians beeswax is particularly sought after mm. but there was an article written the other day in by the abc and it's up to 30 dollars a kilo now australian yeah. beeswax for retail there was a one company complaining they make I think beard conditioner out of the wax and they might not be able to continue if their price goes up much higher. There's lots of reasons why we should be protecting our local beekeeping industry and and, uh, trying to reduce the use of bad chemicals in the environment, not just for the protection of bees. I think just for, you said these things are carcinogenic, so they've got human health implications as well. Mm. And they also hang around. That's the other thing that I wasn't aware of with things like Confidor and, and Roundup, that those chemicals are actually staying, you know, they're, they're in probably the majority of people's sheds or, you know, in their garden storage areas. So it'd be a while before these things are actually eliminated, even with awareness being mm. raised. Exactly. And uh, the, the common phrase the people at the APVMA say is people have to use them as directed. Mm. and we just know that the average person isn't always as careful as mm. or, or read the fine mm. things in the label one of the things particularly neonicotinoids are bad with is aquatic creatures like tadpoles and frogs right and obviously we know all the other species that eat insects like birds and bats mm. so it can really wipe out the whole food chain talking to ben moore from ben's bees you can go to uh, ben's website it's just bensbees.com.au and also simon mulvaney from save the bees australia simon has a website as well it's be the cure.com.au Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPP FM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter. 